Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Latin Episode 1, a production of the Fleming Foundation. Hopefully, you've listened to our introductory show where you heard our speaker and teacher for this uh, series of podcasts, Dr. Fleming, and he is here again with us today. Uh, Dr. Fleming, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's good to be with you. Well, we're going to get right into it. I think that was what you ended our introductory episode with, was an exhortation to, to not overcomplicate things, just get into it and and be okay with failing uh, as you learn, that it's not Latin isn't something easy, but there's a reward to it. And I think you picked an appropriate text for us to start with, which was at the beginning of St. John's Gospel. And uh, not surprisingly, in principio era verbum. So in the beginning was the word, and that's we're going to start at the beginning. But I suppose it might make some sense to give our listeners some context for that. So when we're talking about this, and I'll, I'll link in the show notes, for our listeners to the, the, the Vulgate text that Dr. Fleming has chosen. Why, um, what's the significance of the Latin here in relationship to other languages or a translation? Well, the, uh, the, 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 the Vulgate version, which is predominantly the work of St. Jerome, who was revising an earlier Latin version, but it has all it has been the authoritative text for the Western Church, and um, one of the, its translations into English are very difficult because English is so less precise and so different a language, whereas Latin is a translation from the Greek, and there's so much parallelism in structure and in clarity between Latin and Greek that essentially you can't ever utter gibberish in Latin. English is a, you know, English is the only language which has a whole literature based on nonsense. You know, it's you know, Alice in Wonderland, Edward Lear. You can't do nonsense in Latin uh, because Latin requires you to be precise. And so one of the great things about the Vulgate text is not only is it the official text uh, for the uh, for the Catholic Church, in effect, for all of Christendom, for in in the West for uh, 15 centuries, uh, well, not quite 15 centuries, but for but for over a thousand years. But not only that, it is a very clear, effective translation that doesn't allow any any ambiguity or any indecision. Well. If we're if we're not looking at the the Vulgate, I know you had alluded to in previous uh, in, in our previous show in our previous episode about different textbooks. So obviously, if we're if we're spending some time today looking at the Gospel, which we'll, we'll get into, what other textbooks would someone use to to learn Latin? Obviously, going to the Vulgate is is one thing that we'll be doing throughout this series. But what are some textbooks that you can recommend? Well, as I suggested um, the, on our last show, uh, for grown-ups, for adult learners, I would think uh, older textbooks, for example, in particular, I've been looking at uh, Father Henley's textbook, which is still in print. It goes back to the 1950s. It's still available both in second-hand and brand-new editions. There's also the Jenny and Scudder series, but I recommend the early uh, versions that is going back to the 50s rather than more recent versions which are full of errors and, and very bad Latin. 
And there's also uh, probably the most popular book for self-teaching has been uh, Wheelock's Latin, which was made available from um, Barnes & Noble, uh, the, the big uh, book wholesalers and discounters. And that, again, and that has an answer key. And I believe, uh, Henley, also, you can get uh, study guides and answer keys. So all, any one of those for an adult. For, for children, I recommend uh, both the Oxford and the Cambridge series. The, Ox the Cambridge series is a little bit better for smaller children, and the Oxford series uh, teaches them grammar at a, at a little faster rate. But um, I'm happy, by the way, uh, through this show and through our website, we'll be answering these kinds of questions uh, where people want to send them in through an email. Yes, and we'll, again, we'll give that email in the show notes where people can ask those questions. Yeah. Well, I, I guess my first question for you, Dr. Fleming, is if we're looking at this um, sentence, and we're, we're just going to work through, a, for our listeners, we're going to work through a few parts of, of our our selected text from the Vulgate today, and we'll see how far we, we get with Dr. Fleming. We'll be using the uh, ecclesiastical pronunciation where we're, we're using church texts, and I suppose when we get into some profane texts uh, further down in the, in the podcast series, we, we might uh, use the classical pronunciation, but can you give our listeners a bit of insight into the difference between the two? Yes. The, um, this is, this is, this, this is a, a somewhat... Uh, tricky little field, we, we have a pretty good idea about how classical Latin was pronounced. I've, I've talked to people who say, oh, no, we don't know. Well, actually, we do know. We know from the way it's transliterated into Greek. We know from spelling mistakes in, in walls and inscriptions. We, we, have a pretty, we, have, we have grammatical introductions to the ancient world that describe the way sounds are made. We have a pretty good idea. But, of course, there was always sort of upper-class Latin, and then there was street Latin, the vulgar Latin. And vulgar Latin started evolving into what became Italian, even in the days of the Roman Empire. And so, by, at some point, we could tell, by some point, say, 7, 800, 900 A.D., at some point, the pronunciation of Latin became more or less like the pronunciation of modern Italian. Except in England, of course, they went their own way, and in the, you know, and they had this famous vowel shift in English, and so that an English schoolboy a hundred years ago learned to pronounce Latin that doesn't sound either like the, like the classical Latin or like the church Latin. And so the question is always, you know, what do you teach? And especially if, you, if we were having this conversation 50 years ago in England, we'd have three choices instead of, instead of just two. And I think it's, it's valuable for people to learn both systems because the, the classical system, which is sometimes called the Reformed or Erasmian system, the classical system preserves things like the sound of vowels, which is very important in poetry, and it also avoids ambiguities that come in with, with the Italianate pronunciation, with ecclesiastical Latin. But for those who are talking about the Christian tradition, so just even generically Christian, there, there's no reason not to use the ecclesiastical pronunciation. And we'll start with that, 
And then as the show goes on, we'll have some shows that are just done in classical Latin, and then we can go back and forth once people are used to it. It's not that difficult uh, a problem. Well, with that, let's look at our first sentence, Dr. Fleming. In principio erat verbum, et verum erat apodeum, et deus erat verbum. So if you're a traditional Catholic, this is a sentence you hear every Sunday uh, as part of the last gospel, which is read at the end of Mass. And I'm, I think they should, those listeners might be a bit excited because this is a chance to unlock it, apart from they have the English translation right next to the Latin, but this is an opportunity to go a little bit deeper than just looking at the translation on, on the right side of the page. So um, what yes. would you like to talk about in this first sentence? Well, let's, talk, let's, let's, take, uh, let's take the first phrase, in principio. Um, the, first of all, the word principio, it means beginning, but there are two words in Latin that mean beginning, and they're, they're rather different. Initium is from the Latin verb meaning to enter on or go into. So that's the beginning as in the sense of taking the first step on a journey. Whereas principium, in classical Latin, principium, in, in ecclesiastical Latin, principium is, means that which takes first place, both in time and importance. So the principium is not just the beginning, but it's also the foundation. And by the way, it's very accurately translating a Greek word, which means both beginning and fundamental element. So, uh, and if you when, later on, if you read St. Paul, he's always talking about the elements. And this is, this is one of the words uh, in Greek that's used. So this, it's not just that in the beginning as a point in time, but it's also this is the foundation of the world we live in. So, so it's a it's very uh, powerful word. So, in beginning was the verbum, the word. Now, this is uh, this is a translation of the Greek word logos, which is almost impossible to translate. Logos means word or speech itself, or the power of reason or proportion. So, the 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 second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is not just it's not the word of God in the sense of the scriptures, which unfortunately I've heard fundamentalists tell me, but it, it is it is the, the the utterance of the divine nature that gives that gives rational shape to the universe. Now, verbum is interesting because it means it, but it's any utterance, but it also is used to mean out like our word verb. In other words, it's, an, it's sort of an, it implies action, not just a passive noun. So it's a, it's a strong word in Latin, a much stronger word than we have. That we get, so in principio erat verbum, et verbum erat apodeum. Now we translate that apod as with, and that's close enough. But it means, apud means very close to, intimately associated with. It's a very, and in Greek, the word also, it, it, it means something like in the face of, right up with. So here we have apud, and meaning almost like in the house of, or living in close proximity to. So it's a very intimate, powerful word. So the word was 
not just with God, in association with God, but, but almost cohabiting with God. It's very, it's very suggestive, very powerful. Then we go on a little bit. You know, hoc erat in principio apodeum omnia per ipsum facta sunt. And this was in the beginning with God, and all things through. See, now we're getting we're going to get a little confused here in English with Him. If we, all things with Him was that. I remember when I first read this passage as a child, I couldn't, I didn't know in English whether all things with Him is that with God or with or with uh, with uh, with the with the Word. And obviously, the ipsum. It means something like itself, its very self. So it intensely refers back to the the word that was in the beginning. So Latin doesn't allow you to get confused the way English can. Does this make sense? <laughs> yes. Well, and I and I'm just I'm sort of getting caught up in this, Dr. Fleming. That especially your reference, though, in Principia we've got arche in Greek and logos for right. verbum. That the the sentence. Said it goes from your your pretty standard English. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. To the you're ripping open the multiple meanings and the implication. And the sentence now I, I don't want to say you're falling down a a well, but more of sort of you're stumbling across this second third look, look at the the sentence itself because yeah. as you say, there's a difference between saying initium or principio. And that verbum has an active sense to it, as opposed to, let's say, in English, we think of a word as this, this static thing. Um, so it's, it's fascinating. So I'm trying to I'm trying to be a good host and and keep us moving, but I'm <laughs> I'm also getting I'm getting caught up in the in the explication here. And yes, you're right. The the reflexive part is is probably a bit of a challenge for an English speaker. Yes. Yes. And. Um... The uh, a couple of other words in the in the very beginning of this prologue are also interesting. First of all, we have several parts of the verb faccio, facere, feci, factum, the verb to do or make. This is a very uh, productive word. In the passive, it can mean parts of that verb can mean simply become or became. And but it also is it can be used literally to mean have you know was made. So things were made all and and but and it's a sim, very similar uh, ambiguity in the in the Greek verb gigdomai. We have uh, all things come into being. You see through the the second person of the Trinity. So it's not like uh, it's not like a potter simply making a pot or a factory making an automobile. There it's very existence. It's not a reshaping of things. It's a it's a forcing things into coming to be. It's very powerful. Then um, we get in ipso vita erat et vita erat lux hominum. In him that is in his very self that life was, and life was the light of men. Now, I've, I've loved some of the feminists who, who get angry and say, well, men, that's not a good word. Well, because what about women? And the, uh, the, in Latin, of course, they have two words for man. One is what we have here, homo hominis, uh, a third declension noun, which means man as human being. And so the, our word human and humane come from it. 
And so it's man as opposed to the beasts. And so all those things that characterize human life, that is our sociability, our lawfulness, our decency, kindness, that distinguishes us from animals. Whereas the other word, veer, means man as opposed to woman, and often is used to mean husband. And so we get words like virile and virility. Interestingly, we also get virtue, because uh, the assumption is that only men have virtue and women don't. Now, before we get a ton of, of uh, angry letters from <laughs> ladies, um, it's, I, I'll point out that virtue, our word virtue, which comes from the Latin virtus, but virtus means manliness originally. And so it's a very aggressive word. We think of virtue as basically consisting in saying no to temptation. You know, oh, I'm, uh, it's Lent and I really shouldn't eat that, or I really shouldn't drink that, or I really shouldn't do that. For the Greeks and Romans, virtue was an active, assertive moral quality that, that, that wasn't simply passively saying no. And so originally, uh, this notion of, of uh, virtue was meant primarily courage. And it's, it's, uh, it's sort of important to remember that lest we get this Sunday school attitude that Christians are all pacifists who, as the Irish say, wouldn't pull the wings off a dead bee. That is not, that is not the history of, of Christianity. It is, it is, it, it is forceful. We, we're, we're forceful when we need to be. I, I, I wanted to bring up another point, just a point of order, Dr. Fleming. You, you switched into, I would say, robot mode, but it's, the, it's what all of us were taught, which is when you, you say a verb, you then say these parts. So you, you said, facio facere feci factus, factum, or yes. uh, you said homo hominis. Now, people who've never studied Latin before have no idea why you needed to say the verb four different ways, or you needed to say the noun two different ways. So just right. give us a bit of insight into why you, you, just, you automatically said it when you referred to it. Yes. Well, first of all, it's a habit of teaching Latin 100,000 times. But, but it, is, <laughs> it, is, it, it is important. When you learn... Um, and, and, and this I think we should devote most of the rest of our program to is how, how do you go about learning the Latin? How do you study it? You've got a book, you're learning a lesson, how do you do it? Well, first, you, you know, I'm going to say this over and over. L try to learn it from English to Latin, not Latin to English, because English to Latin is much harder, because then you're, it's like you're learning to speak and write Latin. You're not simply learning to translate it. It's a, it's, a, it's a much more active and aggressive way of learning the language. But then you have to learn the Latin vocabulary. That you have to learn the parts of it that are essential for using the word. Because Latin, you, you don't, don't just have one word or maybe add S for a plural. Latin has case endings, which indicate how the word is used. So, for example, the word homo. It, it has homo, which is when it's the subject of a sentence, but if it's indicating possession, it's hominis. If it's an indirect object, it's homini. If it's the direct object, like he, uh, he hit the man, it's homonym. And if you're using, for example, with a preposition, mostly it'll be with homine. And so you've got a s similar set. So if you just look at homo, you won't know how to use the word. You have to know that it is homo, nominative, hominis, 
a genitive, and then you have to know the gender, masculine, because that tells you what kind of adjectives will go with it. So if you if you pay attention and you study it that way, so the, the, then what you should be testing yourself as, don't say, oh yeah, homo, that means man. What you need to test yourself on and study it on is to say, man, ah, yes, homo, hominis, masculine. And uh, it's it, it really... I've, I've tried it both ways, but I've, I've, I've settled on the more old-fashioned, more difficult way. That's how I, I've always taught it. My students always came out much better. Well, I can't imagine why you'd settle on the more old-fashioned and difficult way, Dr. Fleming. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us about the principal parts of the verb? So you, you told yes. us we, it's no, nominative, singular, and then genitive, singular, and then the gender for right. the noun. For but noun. the verb has four. The verb has four. They're called principal parts. They're, you know, again, here's our word. Uh, here's our word. Uh, principium, principium, princeps, um, meaning that that which takes first place, that which is fundamental. The the four principal parts are the parts you have to know of the verb in order to use any verb in all its different forms. In all, it tells you how to form its different tenses. The Latin verb is a, is a very rich and complicated system, but it's also almost mathematically logical. So to know how to form the present system of tenses, which consists of the present, the simple future, and, uh, and, a, and, a, and one of the past tenses, the imperfect, which is incompleted action, you have to know both the first principle part, which is the I do, part, faccio, I do or I am doing, and you have to know the infinitive, facere, to do, because through those two forms, you can construct the entire present system. But to do the three perfect tenses, I have done, I shall have done, I had done, in the active, you need the third principal part, which here is feci, and to construct the passive perfect system, the, you know, I, I have been done, or it has been done, it will have been done, it had been done, you then need the, pa- the fourth principle part, which is the perfect passive participle, which is technically factus, facta, factum, because it's an adjective. It has, it has all three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter. Now this is all. If you haven't st- started studying Latin, this is all going to be sounding like it's uh, like it's mumbo jumbo. But if you're just beginning, you, you'll find a, a discussion of these things in the first couple of chapters of any Latin book. But the thing you you have to bear in mind is you want to get an active knowledge of these things. You can't just let Latin sort of wash over you, so like reading an historical episode or a piece of fiction. Latin, you have to dig in your fingers, and you, you've got to really get a hold of it. And one of the ways to, to uh, get a hold of it is to, is you have to, if you look at a Latin verb, I always tell people, look at it from, not from left to right, but right to left. So um, take, let's take something really simple, like um, a verb... Say anything like uh, uh, John used to love Mary. You know, well, let's just take the verb used to love, was in love with, amabat. 
Well, if you read it from right to left, you see, and when you're starting to try and figure out what it means, you look at the ending, at. Well, that tells you that it's the subject is he, she, or it. So that starts, so that's how we started English. So it's he, she, he or she. In this case, we know it's going to be John. And then the ba, the B-A. Well, that tells you what tense it is. And the, by the way, the ending also tells you, it's the, the T tells you it's active. So we now know that the verb is he or she used to be doing something. And then when you get to the ama, then that, oh, the basic meaning is love. And so when you do it this way, instead of just looking at the word, oh, it's love, and then you're going to plug it into the sentence any old way you can, which is how my students used to try to get away with it. Whereas if you look at it from right to left, you sort of think analytically, think backwards, then uh, you'll, you'll begin to start to think like uh, as a Roman would have thought in constructing the sentence. And we won't, we won't speculate as to why John is no longer in love with Mary. We'll, we'll have to keep moving on in our studies today. Um, the, the, the other thing I want to point out, that, that's, if people are saying, okay, Dr. Fleming, masculine, feminine, there's also something in Latin called neuter. So what's the significance of, of, of the neuter form within the noun set? Yeah, I'll, I'll avoid making any of the obvious jokes. The, uh, <laughs> the, it, these, are, these are not, remember, sexual categories, although all nouns referring to men are masculine and nouns referring to women are feminine. But these are really uh, more grammatical categories. And so the, the neuter category uh, is, it's true when you talk about things, many things are in the neuter, but it is a way in, uh, they have of dividing up the world. And by the way, this is not unique to Latin. Greek and Sanskrit have neuters. Slavic languages uh, have, have neuters. And so, and, um, and, but, it, but, it, but it's not pr it is not primarily a sense of biological gender. It's, it's a way of dividing the, 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 the nouns up, and it's the way they're formed. But uh, I don't want to get into too much linguistic theory. Oh, and that's fine. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the adjectives have to match the nouns. So, yes. for example, if you if you take something like homo, homo is uh, a masculine noun, uh, or vir, for example, what do you mean when you say the adjective has to match the noun? And I suppose we can tie this back to what you were just saying about a mabot um, yeah. and how the ending gives us a clue. Yeah, the, um, the, it's called noun-adjective agreement. Now, a mistake that a lot of young learners make, or people who are fresh to the subject, they think this means that the endings have to be the same. So, for example, they'll look at a sentence which says, like, the bonus amicus, good friend, masculine, uh, singular, it's the subject of the sentence. Or, Marcus is a good friend. Marcus est bonus amicus. Well, but, see, what if Marcus is a good man? Well, Marcus est bonus vir. Or, Marcus is a good human. Bonus homo. You see, it's not the endings that have to match up. <laughs> or, or you can it go is, even more confusing. You can say he's a good farmer or a good poet, and then you've got yeah, them completely yes. Bonus agricola, bonus poeta, because there are uh, there are a few words in the a declension, which is almost otherwise always uh, feminine, 
there are a few words, many of them from Greek, uh, that have uh, be, because they're 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 Greek nouns ending in tes, which means which is an agent, the doer of something. Like poetes, poet means the maker in Greek, and so then it becomes specifically somebody who makes poems, and then it comes into Latin as poeta, but. Uh, but it but it has what looks in Latin to be a feminine ending, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that you're dealing with a feminine poet. If there, if of course, if it is a feminine poet, there there were a few uh, in Rome. Then uh, then it would of course use a, a, a feminine adjective. But the important thing is it's it's a grammatical agreement, not an agreement in ending. And it skips around, you know, it can, it can, it can, the, the words themselves can look quite different. Now, uh, we've got something like, like nihil, or nihil as it some, might also be pronounced, neither a noun or a verb, and these are just words that we need to memorize. Yeah. The nihil is, uh, is of course, it, it, is it, it, it's sort of a noun, but it's indeclinable, that is, it has no endings. Now, interestingly, there is, you do see a word, uh, uh, nihili and nihilo, but that is, the Romans assumed it came from an alternate form, nihilo. Normally, when you see nihil, that's all you see. Nihil means nothing, and it is so common in use that it has no, uh, it has no other endings. But yes, prepositions, adverbs, conjunctions, None of, fortunately, none of them have endings, although they may require certain endings on certain words, but they do not themselves. This, this system is called inflection. That is, you, you decline nouns, that is, they have different case endings, and you conjugate verbs, but together this system of, of declension and conjugation is called inflection, and English was once upon a time an inflected language like Latin. We still have a few forms, like apostrophe S to show uh, possession, and uh, we have a few different endings in a verbal system. But if you ever uh, study Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon is structured a lot like German. It's a Germanic language. And even modern, you know, modern German is a much more inflected language than, uh, than English is. And the thing about inflected languages is that it, they allow for greater precision, and they also allow for a certain flexibility in word order. In English, we, we determine meaning by word order. Uh, John struck Bob, or John hit Bob. Well, Bob, if you change the word order, it's Bob hit John. That changes the meaning. In Latin, it would not, because in Latin, you would make it very clear from the word ending who is the subject and who is the object. And so they can be much more flexible in the order of the words and they can reach, they can change the order to make for emphasis or for a certain sound quality. It can be much more artistic because there's never any doubt who's doing what to whom in Latin. Well, and I'm, I'm one of these uh, old fuddy-duddies who, who remembers diagramming sentences in school and when I look at prepositional phrases, I, and I think about them in English, it really brings home the same point in Latin. And for our listeners, all of these in, uh, apud, um, per, sine, all of these are prepositional phrases that are tied to case endings. Can you talk a little bit about that, Dr. Fleming? Yeah. 
the uh, and we'll we'll go into this at, at greater length in because this is more or less we're continuing uh, a sort of to give you a taste of Latin, but the different cases uh, uh, in a Latin noun or adjective or pronoun, the different cases show you basically how the word can be used in the sentence or or what its what its function is. So the nominative case, which is the case you learn when you look up a word in a dictionary, you know, like tenebra or homo, this is the, this is the subject of the sentence or anything that, uh, that agrees with the subject, or like a predicate noun or a predicate adjective. Whereas the genitive case, which you also learn when you look it up because you learn homo hominis, the genitive case they always say it's the case of possession, but it, what it really means is is when you use one noun to modify another, the modifying noun goes in the genitive case, like love of money, John's book. You know, all of the, there are a variety of uses, but they all come down to the idea of one noun is being used sort of as an adjective to modify another noun. The dative case is used for indirect relationships like the primarily indirect object. I give the gift to my friend, to my friend. I'm not doing anything to my friend, but I have this indirect interaction with him. I'm doing something directly to the gift, and as a result, my friend gets it. And so there's a, there's a whole psychology involved of these indirect relations, like, for example, expressions meaning near to or like unto or unlike. So all sorts of things, but they fall into this category. Whereas the accusative case, which they tell you in elementary uh, Latin books, the accusative case is the case of direct object. Really, the accusative case is a way of limiting the action of a verb. So let's say you have a verb, um, uh, I love. Well, that means I love everything in the universe. One way of limiting the meaning is to put an object to it. So I love my children. Well, now it's not. Now it's very. It's very narrow. But there are other ways. For example, in verbs of uh, verbs of motion, you could say I'm going. Well, where are you going? What's your object? Well, you could have a prepositional phrase. You know, I'm going to the city. I'm going into my house. So the accusative case limits the action there. But it could also say that if you want to say for how long or for how far did you go, those two limit the action of, of the verb. I'm, I'm traveling for six weeks or I'm going 20 miles for three hours. All of those, they, they, they limit how, how far you can, you can understand this, the action of the verb to be going. And so they're all in the accusative case. And so it's almost like a, a, a philosophy to understand how these cases are used. And the tendency in introductory Latin books is just to list each case usage as it comes up. I try, uh, and we're going to be doing this in the future, I try to take each case and understand, try to help students understand what's the underlying feeling about this. And so you get to the most complex one, the ablative case, the last of the cases. There are over 30 specific uses of the ablative case. And the poor student, he looks it up in the back of the book and he says, 
36 uses of the ablative. I'll never get that. But if you say, look, there are three primary categories. There's the so-called ablative ablative, which means taking something away or moving away or depriving somebody of something. In other words, it's, it's separating. Uh, that's one basic category. Another basic category is place where? In town, you know, uh, in, 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 in my home, whatever. And so all, all sorts of things expressing geographical location. And thirdly, uh, the, the whole complex of, of meanings associated with our word with, like uh, he, he hit him, you know, with a hammer, or he uh, he went with his friend to town. This these, this association and use of instrument uh, to accomplish something. That's that's the third class of the ablative. So once you learn these three, and again we'll we'll take each one of these up separately as we go along. When you learn the underlying thing, the underlying meaning, then it's important to learn every little name for every little usage. But in fact, you don't really have to know it. What you have to know is the big picture for each case, and then it will allow you to see exactly how they're used in specific instances. And forgive me, Dr. Bobby, I was still stuck on the image of hitting my friend with a hammer. Um, we're, we're obviously... <laughs> we're not sure where Dr. Fleming comes people. up with... <laughs> not sure where Dr. Fleming comes up with these examples, but... We, we alluded to the fact that he, he, Dr. Fleming pointed out that, for example, the first declension ends in A, and it's generally feminine, except for some exceptions. Uh, the second declension ends in U.S. or R, and it's generally masculine. And so we see some of those in our text today. So we saw Deus, and we saw, which is clearly second, or Tenebrae, um, which is yes. a genitive of Tenebra, which is feminine. But then we have Luke's. For example, which is which is feminine, but but how do we know this? We know this because we study, and this goes into the big question. Maybe maybe my last question of today, Doctor Fleming, which is, how am I going to study this vocab? You're you're telling me I not only have to know these words, I need to know full parts or genitives, and then I need to know what sex or what gender they are. Yes. Um, how yes. how do I study this? You study it by first first of all. You don't study with your eyes. That is the mistake that a lot of uh, uh, elementary language students make. You should read the vocabulary. Everything they told you about when you're learning to read in grammar school is probably wrong for studying Latin or any other language. They tell you, don't read with your eyes, don't move your lips, you know, don't. In fact, what you want to do is you want to say the words aloud and you want to then test yourself, you know, turn the page. Make a list and see in English and can can you get it right and you test yourself until you get it right. And yes, the problem with a word like Luke's, how do you know it's feminine? Well, you don't because there's no there's nothing to tell you that in looking at the word. You simply have to to learn it, and that's uh, that's true of um, many many third declension nouns. There are some tricks, but even those tricks don't work with a word like looks uh, because it's it's you just have to know it. But the, the, there's, there's no substitute for this kind of memorization. I found some people, you know, some people actually, their, their learning uh, style often involves bodily movement, too. Some people learn better if they can sort of pace up and down and sort of like they're marching and recite the, the, uh, the words aloud. I don't recommend that in a classroom. 
but it uh, but when you're on your own now some people also learn better by writing things out the only way you're going to find out how well you learn it, uh, in different ways is by doing it for example i find that the, one of the great benefits of writing things down is that i never look at the notes again because i re- once i've written it down i remember it uh, but other people mm. it's their 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 uh, memory works better by the ear the one thing that doesn't work in languages is just to let your eyes wander up and down the page and think you're studying because you're not. And if you're teaching this to your children, for example, don't let them play the radio or the stereo. Don't let them have the TV on. Latin and any foreign language requires undivided attention and probably not much more than 30, 40 minutes at a time without taking a break. You know, the, the Pimsleur method of teaching modern languages, which there's no, there's, no, there's no grammar in it, but they just have 30 in, minutes of intense repetition, they will only do 30 minutes a day. And though I think that's, that's absurdly small, but if you do, there's certain kinds of things you can only do for 30, 40 minutes. And for, for example, memorizing vocabulary is one of them. So work on memorizing the vocabulary and then put the book down for a while. You you can maybe read some Latin or study some grammar, but don't think you can memorize for two hours because even if it works in the short run, then it disappears from your mind within 24 hours. Well, and I, I think that I think that point's well taken, Doctor. I mean, you just you have to study because uh, we do have an advantage. I should point out, speaking English over people who speak Russian or Chinese or Japanese yeah. in that a lot of our words we'll recognize. It's not that difficult for us to look and go and say homo. Oh, I, I can, you know, I have no idea how that relates to man, uh, you know, yeah. or verbum. I have no idea how that relates to word words. So however difficult yeah. you might think it might be, just realize that you have an inbuilt advantage over people who don't speak a language that's, that's directly related to Latin as ours is. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've tried to study some Slavic languages, and from uh, I've studied some Serbian, and that's a lot of Serbian and some Russian, and it's a nightmare because until you get a basic Slavic vocabulary down, you know every new word is completely alien. Where it, it, oh, there are a few words like brat for brother, but you know, whereas in English and Latin, there we have uh, just an amazing amount of vocabulary overlap. And, of course, the other thing, it was something we started to talk about but didn't talk about much in our first program, the other thing is that Latin is, is, the, is a gateway to all Romance languages, so that studying French, Italian, uh, Portuguese, Spanish, these languages become much, much, much easier. I remember when I was doing my, uh, writing my dissertation uh, some years ago, and I had to read books. I had never studied a minute of Italian or Spanish. But I would have to read whole books in these languages because in order to get the gist of them to be able to cite them in my dissertation. And, you know, with a fair amount of Latin, it, it, reading technical stuff like that with a technical vocabulary was not very difficult at all. And years later, when I came to st- study Italian seriously, of course, people said, gosh, you're making such rapid progress. Well, when 95% of the vocabulary and the grammatical structure of a language comes from Latin, it's small wonder that I made rapid progress in Italian. <laughs> and uh, the, other, <laughs> the other thing is, you know, like uh, there's all these problems in bilingual education for, for kids who grow up in, in Spanish-speaking households. 
te- experimental stuff they've done, testing and uh, experimental uh, educational programs in, for example, Los Angeles, show that for Mexican immigrant children to be given Latin gives them an immediate leg up over everybody else because Latin is a bridge between Spanish and English. And all of a sudden, through Latin, the Spanish speaker sees this large English vocabulary that is now familiar to it. Without the Latin, Mm. it, it, it really doesn't make much sense to it. Indeed, indeed. And I suppose for the Spanish speakers, something as simple as familia uh, really works well for them. Yeah. Yes, yes. Part of, part of why we selected um, scripture, um, not just to tie us into the, the, great, the, the great tradition that, from the Vulgate and to tie us back to the way that, that many educated people read um, scripture throughout time, uh, we also picked it because it's not particularly difficult. This isn't Cicero... We're not looking at uh, grammar constructions that are either uh, free-flowing or uh, a little bit difficult. Scripture is not uh, difficult in, in Latin. And I'm hoping that by to the end of today's episode, which I'm hoping to do now, by illustrating just an, uh, an hour with Dr. Fleming and talking about these different things, that things are starting to click into place. And I just want to look at the, the last part of the, the this, this first um, few verses that we were looking at, which is, in ipso vita erat, et vita erat lux hominum, et lux tenebris lucet, et tenebrae eum non comprendere. And if you look at each of those, you can see these little groups. So in ipso vita erat, you have this sort of group, and then you have an et, so and, and then vita erat lux hominum. So these ets are, are blocking you off so you can focus on this little, oh, in ipso vita erat, okay, preposition, object, noun, verb, and then vita erat lux hominum, noun, verb, uh, ob, uh, noun, uh, noun, and we have now you, that gets a little bit more complex because we're talking about cases. But each of those start to make a little bit more sense as you listen to what Dr. Fleming was saying about ending, about where you uh, where you should be reading the verbs. But more importantly, and I suppose the the lesson I would echo is you have to know the vocabulary. You have an advantage as an English speaker, but it means that you still have to study as well. Yes, indeed. And the 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 I picked I specifically picked uh, John's Gospel p- partly, of course, because it is in the beginning, and we're in the beginning of our course, but also because there's no easier passage grammatically in uh, in the New Testament. John clearly did not know much Greek, and so his Greek uh, the, fir- the first time I had to teach introductory Greek, it was to uh, People wanted to go to seminary, and and so I had to teach them John's John's Gospel. And as a as a lifelong atheist at that point, I found why am I why am I having to teach John's Gospel when there's all the Greek literature? And by the time I finished the course, I was going to church because just reading the gospel, reading this work itself is a kind of conversion experience for anybody who takes it seriously. It's a it's a very it's one of the most important pieces of literature ever written, but it's written at a fifth grade level. And so you get access to one of the greatest books ever written, but at the same time, it's written that, that any introductory Latin student can sort of begin to see how it works. So it's really an, a, a great opportunity for people. 
Well, I think that's a good place for us to end episode one, Dr. Fleming. Um, anything else you'd like to say as we as we close today's episode um, that we didn't mention that you wanted to mention in our first episode as people get into studying Latin maybe for the first time or coming back to it after many years away? What I would say is that uh, we're going to be available for you know email questions and if you uh, you once well, this is just very much a work in progress we're just getting it off the ground but uh, bear with us and and have courage and when you run into problems and if you or if you want advice we're going to have a kind of uh, you know uh, an advice column on the website where you can say I don't like this textbook what about that one I'm having trouble finding this or I don't understand this by instead of just being able to answer one of you one at a time by answering you in public and you don't have to give your name but if you don't wish to but by answering one of you I'm, I'm maybe answering questions for a hundred people at the same time and so I think this will be very effective to be able to go back and forth between our uh, website treatment of these and, and giving you a lot of information on resources and these more familiar conversational uh, treatments that we're doing on on the uh, the radio broadcast. And Dr. Fleming is also proving that you can teach an old dog new tricks, leveraging technology to answer multiple emails or, or letters at once is uh, quite a good use of it. So um, we'll be looking forward to <laughs> We'll be looking forward to that. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Fleming. We look forward to our next episode. Okay. Wonderful.